Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Well, I appreciate those words. One thing Brother Sonny said that we should think about, he said uh, that the Lord had kind of always been watching over him and he didn't even know it. You know, every natural born infant comes into this world and is in kind of that condition. They're helpless. They need a mother or parent. And it's not until many years later that they ever come to know what their parents did for them. A lot of times it comes about when they end up doing it for their own child. They start realizing, oh, I I see now what all had to be put into this. By the way, just the fact that you grew up in the same house with them and lived many years together does not necessarily mean that you know them. There's a way that you know them in that sort of sense, but there's ways that you can come to know your parents a lot more by pressing into that relationship. And those who commit time, having conversations and outings together and stuff like that, and having conversations, you can come to know your parents in a way that's much greater than just kind of interpreting the way they raised you and the provision they had for you. I think the Lord's people in this era are very much in that condition. I think there's a lot of God's people who are born of His Spirit, but who have not availed themselves of the provision God has so that you might know God better. There's a lot of self-help stuff out there in the world. You need to improve yourself. Here's ways that you can improve yourself. And just a lot of decent advice in some of those things. A lot of it just has to do with do something, right? And a lot of people get vapor lock and they don't want to improve anything. But we recognize that if we improve in things, that's profitable to us in a lot of different ways, whether you're playing sports or trying to pursue a job or an education or whatever. You're going to have to apply yourself to the precepts of that thing that you're looking into if you're going to come to know that thing better. Uh, And this is true even in your relationships with people. Sometimes people say things like, well, you can't be perfect So it's almost like, well, what's the point? You know, if I can't achieve perfection, then why would I even pursue things like that? But it doesn't take much reason to step back and realize, you know, perfection is a goal, and you can become a whole lot better than you are by pursuing that goal and trying to root out things in your life that you might regard as imperfections. And you can be a much better person even though you know you didn't ever achieve perfection. Every person that you admire, you look out across the horizontal plane of humanity and you say, well, this person over here, I really admire them. They've done so many wonderful things. They've really contributed to society or to the church in some way. That person is imperfect, right? So your admiration of such people is some indication that you recognize there's a value in pursuing being a whole lot better than you are even though perfection eludes us, right? What I want to talk about today is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm calling it perfection in perilous times. Now, this idea of perfection is one you have to look at closely in the Word of God, and it may carry a lot of baggage with it. You know, you think perfection is no flaws, none whatsoever, and the Bible actually uses the term perfection in a little bit different way than that. But it does speak about perfecting God's people, And it does say that we are living in perilous times. 
I remember when I was a kid, I heard about this German family of acrobats. They're called the Flying Walendas. If you remember those, they were very popular back in the circus days. I think circuses have kind of fallen on hard times with all the modern forms of entertainment that seem to be uh, drawing people away. But there was a time when circuses were a big draw, and uh, part of that draw was seeing people put themselves in situations of physical danger. Lion tamers. You're going to get in a cage with a lion, a whip, and a chair, and you're going to try to get that lion to do something. Well, you know, people are entertained by that because they're like, that's pretty risky. You don't see that every day. And you might imagine that if you were going to be a lion tamer and you said, that's the career I'm going to pursue, you might think, I probably ought to really work on my skills at this because it's a high-stakes game, right? I may not be a perfect lion tamer, but I want to be the very best one I can be to minimize the chance that the lion's going to take dominance over me when I get in that cage. Again, pursuing perfection has a lot of value in it, even though you can never actually be perfect, right? The flying Walendas were famous because they would do these tightrope acts. One of the things that made that more interesting was that they did it without a net. They spent lots and lots of hours working on that tightrope before they ever got up in the big top in front of a big crowd of people. They knew full well they were never going to achieve perfection in walking across that tightrope. But they knew they needed to get as close to it as they could possibly get. And however long it took in their act, a few minutes to walk across that tightrope. The whole show is probably 20 minutes long. They had put hours and hours and hours of work into this matter because they knew walking a tightrope is a perilous matter. You don't take it lightly. It's very different. There's no net. If I fall off this thing, I'm dead. And some of the Walendas died as a result of this, and they just kept on going as a family. But they recognized that while they can't be perfect, and evidently some of them were not, They needed to be as perfect as they could possibly be to have the best chance of walking across a tight rope like that, particularly when you have no net. Perfection and personal improvement, these notions are highly desirable. If you're going to be a tight rope walker, you want to be the best one you can be. But if you're going to be a Christian, and the Bible says we live in perilous times, it is very much like you're walking a tight rope in this world. And if you think, well, I'm just going to kind of improvise. I've never walked the tightrope before. I'm just going to try to step out there, and I think I can do this on my own. It's probably not going to go well for you. We would all have enough natural fear of heights that if someone put you up on that platform 60 feet above the audience and said, just go ahead and walk across, you'd be like, ain't no way I'm doing that. I've got too much natural fear of that perilous situation to just launch off without ever having tried it before. I've never had any practice at it. I've never had a Walinda come alongside me and say, well, let's work on that rope that's about two feet off the ground and we'll work on that one for a while and then we'll start moving up. You didn't done any of that. You never availed yourself of any of the potential training that might be helpful to accomplish this task. We all have enough natural fear to where we'd be like, I don't want any part of that. And yet in spiritual matters, God's people are very much standing on the edge platform there, and your spiritual life in a perilous world is like walking across that tightrope. We all have to travel that rope. So the question is, are you going to avail yourself of what God has put in this world to prepare you for that exercise? You say, well, I can't be perfect. 
I don't want to be a hypocrite. I can't be perfect, so I'm just not even going to try. Well, you're going to have a hard time getting across that rope. We need to pursue perfection in perilous times, and the Word of God shows us where we can do that. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he starts by saying, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. That's where you're sitting right now. God's people are walking across a tightrope in terms of the peril of their temporal affairs in this world. You've got things on all sides of your life that could knock you off the rope, things that could totally wreck your life. And we should think about our lives in that way. We should be protective of them and think, man, if it's perilous times, I'm going to have to be careful where I place my foot. I'm going to have to mind my steps, be careful how I do this. How am I going to do that? It talks about the perilous times here. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Do you see any of that around you today? I mean, I hear a lot of you in the lunchroom, we talk about current situations, and there's kind of a persistent attitude that most people have, kind of shaking their heads at like, look at what this world is turning into. Look at how people are living. Look at how terrible things are. And you see a lot of this out here. Lovers of their own selves. Well, I mean, there's a lot of self-help kind of stuff out there. I hear, uh, you know, kind of an Oprah Winfrey mindset among a lot of people, which is you can't love others until you love yourself. I need to work on loving myself more and more and more. Jesus taught you should love others as you love yourself. I regard that statement as you see how you are in terms of putting yourself first in everything. It's not as though that love you have for self that Jesus is referring to there is like some benevolent good thing necessarily. It's more like you are incredibly selfish and regard things from the standpoint of how is this going to benefit me. That's how you love yourself. And he's saying you should have that sort of attitude towards others. You should be thinking this person over here really needs some help. And I need to try to help that person out rather than trying to figure out how everything's going to benefit me. I see the Bible talking a lot about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But I don't see this notion of you need to work on loving yourself more. And then once you've got that all figured out, you can then start turning that benevolently upon others. There's a lot of self-love stuff out there. And I think much of it is promoting the idea that Jesus was sort of opposed to in that, right? It's almost the exact opposite. Love yourself. You can't love anyone else till you love yourself. Jesus is saying love others. Love God and love others. Don't even orient yourself around loving yourself. You've got enough uh, self-orientation to take care of itself, and we should be focusing on loving others. Well, you've got those types of issues out there. Lovers of self, covetousness, I've spent a lot of time mentioning covetousness. Boasters and proud, that seems to be evidently everywhere on social media. People constantly thumbing their lapels and talking about how great they are. Blasphemers, you know, there's so much blasphemy and vulgar language that goes on commonly in our society that I can say I'm honestly not even particularly offended by it anymore, if you know what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's right to speak that way. I'm saying that I have encountered it so much that I've built up calluses on my soul to where when someone's just letting it fly, it just doesn't affect me, maybe the way it should. I'm just like, this is pretty common. And honestly, if you're going to interact with people, if you intend to witness to people, 
You want to talk to somebody who's lost, who's outside the kingdom of God and needs to hear something about the Lord and come to the Lord's house? A lot of those people are wrapped up in all kinds of stuff. If you think they're going to be handling language in the daintiest of fashions, you're out of your mind. This sort of thing is all around us. People speak blasphemy like it's just nothing. Foul language like it's nothing. It's just, it's just everywhere. I kind of wish I was in a world where I wasn't so callous to it, but it kind of is what it is at this point. And I try to think of it in terms of look beyond that, especially if you're trying to deal with people. And, and uh, it's just an evidence they need some help with some things, I think. Disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, all kinds of lying, issues with lying and dishonesty all around us. Incontinent, that means no self-control. Fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady. Look, there's a lot of despisers of those that are good. There's a lot of people trying to uphold basic good things. And people absolutely hate you for it. If you set forth the biblical model for human sexual interaction, for sexual roles in the world... You know, God created them male and female, and you just lay that out there as this is the plain teaching of Scripture. It's clearly laid out in the Bible. There are people that if you make that statement, they just say, we hate you for that. We absolutely hate you for that. I'm building a case here for we live in perilous times. I don't think I'm having to really convince anybody, but I'm trying to get us to think about it a little bit more. It's one thing to just say, oh, we live in perilous times, and it's another thing to start looking at how does the Bible describe perilous times, and do I see evidences of that all around me? And I think we do. Despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. One of the things I've seen in our society that kind of takes this having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof takes place out in what's called the manosphere, which is where society is trying to recognize that men's roles have been marginalized in society. Our society has been feminized in ways that are not profitable and not helpful. This has created a vacuum in our society, and people are rushing in to fill this vacuum. Men have not been raised to be men. And now people are coming in, trying to come alongside these men who haven't been raised to be men, and tell them, you know what, it's okay to be a man, and you need to be a man, and you need to build yourself up and work on yourself, and all these sorts of things. And in that sense, it kind of has a form of godliness, right? But it's disconnected from the Christian ethic. It's work on yourself. It's all about focusing on you. Be a man. That's what's good for you. It's not, this is what you need to be to be a good disciple, to be a good Christian, to be a good church member, to be a good head of your family, because God's Word says you need to be this way, and you need to have this sort of leadership and authority. It's not that. So you've got men out there who are yearning to be leaders and to be men as they should be, and because Christianity and American society has failed them on many fronts in that regard, now you've got people rushing into this space and saying, come on, I'll teach you how to be a man. But they orient it all around self. They make it virtuous. In that sense, they say this is like a form of godliness. This is a virtuous thing for you to follow. However, we're not really connecting this to Christianity. And many men are following this. They're trying to fill that void in their lives. Ironically, one of the things that's stepping into this space to fill that void is Islam. Christianity has become so weak in terms of defending what men are to be 
that now Islam is stepping in and saying, hey, look, we don't have this problem. We have a very strict moral code. We see the roles as they should be. We see men need to be men, and that's the way it should be. So you need to come over here and step into Islam because we've got what you need. We've had it all along. That's because Christianity has not demanded of its men what they should be as men. And many of the problems we have are directly the result of men not stepping up to the responsibilities that they should have stepped up to. So these things are very deceptive, and they're indications that we live in perilous times. It says, from such turn away. So be careful about this. So there's problems, there's causes, and then there's solutions. And what I find is that people are getting seduced into the latter two things because they have agreement with the first thing. What I mean by that is when someone stands up and says, well, I see this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem. And you sit out there and say, yes, I agree. That is a problem. I totally agree that is a problem. Then they say, and this is the cause of that thing. Now, if the cause of that is not sin, then you've already slipped off the thing. They bought you in with agreeing that I see that this is a problem. Now we're talking about what the cause is, and it's not connected to the Bible. It's not connected to what the Bible says the cause is. The cause of this is sin in humanity and all of its many forms. It's the fact that humanity has fallen. And the common argument that you run into is something like, well, we evolved to be this way. See, we're this way because that's how we evolved to be. Well, we're totally different on the cause here, right? And then there's the solution. So the solution comes in, well, you need to do this. You need to join the manosphere and become a man and improve yourself and just be the best version of yourself that you can be for your own glorification. So because people buy into the first thing, they accept the next two things, even though those things aren't true. And a lot of people are getting swept up in this. A lot of young men are getting swept up. And there's female versions of this as well. There's lots of permutations of it. So this says we're supposed to turn away from those things. I want to make everyone aware of the idea that just because someone sees a bunch of problems that you see, it doesn't mean they understand the cause, nor does it mean they have the proper solution. And very rarely do you find in these instances anything that says the cause is that man is sinful. He's fallen. He's sinful. His nature is evil. And the solution can only be found in God. Very rarely is that the case. So be mindful of that. You may agree with people spotting problems, but that doesn't mean they understand the cause or the solution. We're to turn away from those things. And by the way, some of the discernment you're going to get to turn away from those things comes from you being involved in the kingdom of God and understanding the word of God being preached because you're going to be able to hold it up against them. It's prove all things, hold fast that which is good. If you don't have any access to the word of God or to the teachings of the kingdom of God, what are you holding up against this? They're going to tell you it's, you're that way because you evolved that way. You need to work on yourself. Just make yourself the best version of yourself you can possibly be. Well, I don't have anything to compare that against. That sounds pretty good to me, right? If you have the Word of God, you've got something to compare it. You can actually do the spiritual discernment exercise that tells you, well, they see some of the problems, but they don't have any of the solutions. So it's important that you're acquainted with the Word of God. Now, it talks about some of the things that these types of influencers, if you will. Here's a Bible reference to what we call influencers now. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. In other words, very spiritually immature people, people who are not equipped. They don't have the comparison in their minds to be able to test what's being set before them. And they're led off down these paths. A lot of New Age spiritualism takes this form. It sounds, they'll talk about people 
people's problems, and then it turns into a lot of vague spiritual stuff that has nothing to do with the Bible. And the Bible's very clear. Silly women are led away by this stuff. These are women that don't have any discernment. They don't have any access to the Word of God. They've never pressed into it. They don't understand it. And they say, well, that sounds pretty good. And it's emotionally appealing to me. And so I'm going to follow this silly, vague, spiritual thing. This is an example, a use case, for how this sort of stuff creeps into the Lord's people. Right? Led captive, silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You notice how New Age spirituality's got all kinds of stuff, hoops for you to jump through and vague things for you to learn spiritually and exercises for you to do. And at the end of it, there's zero rational spiritual discernment that ever comes out of any of it. It's just a bunch of feeling stuff. There's no ability to assess the morality or the ethics of any situation in your life. It's all just vague nonsense. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that's sort of the opposite of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. You're supposed to be ever learning, ever coming into more and more contact with the truth, and ever more able to apply it in your life because it's profitable. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. Now, those are the two people who opposed Moses back in the book of Exodus. I'll give you the reference. You can do this as a homework assignment. This is who he's talking about. Exodus 7, 11, and 12. And you'll see this story where Moses is confronting these two people. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. So this is a road to nowhere, is what he's saying. There's no spiritual discernment. You can go down this road. You can spend thousands of dollars on self-help stuff. You can go to all kinds of spirituality conferences and new age, whatever. You can sit in a yoga position and, and meditate and all these sorts of things that new ageism is going to tell you to do. It takes up your time. It tells you to clear your mind. When Christianity tells you to feed on the Word of God, it's the exact opposite, right? So it doesn't take you anywhere. And in verse 10, he says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. He's talking about things that are important to you and things that are aspects of the Christian faith, one of which is doctrine. We've emphasized this many times in recent weeks. Really, a lot of this vague spirituality stuff is the absolute opposite of doctrine. It's just we don't really have a doctrine. We just kind of want to sit and meditate and feel and not really assess rationally anything. But the Word of God says you can reason from the Scriptures, and there's doctrine. There's actual truth out there that can benefit you in your life. I mean, think about the Flying Walendas example. If your life is a perilous tightrope walk, like I said, and you've got two choices. One is to study with the Walendas for a while and build yourself up to where you might be able to go across that. Or you're going to sit over here in a yoga position and burn some incense and meditate for a few hours. You're going to do each of those for a week, and then you've got to walk across that tightrope. Which one do you think is going to give you the better odds of becoming more perfect at walking across that tightrope? We know that in a very simple, natural exercise like that, everybody would say, yeah, meditating is not going to help a whole lot. (laughs) It's not going to help at all. And yet, in spiritual things, we go down that road all the time. Lots of people go down that road. And some of it is to avoid accountability because when you get into doctrine, it starts making you have to think about, well, how am I living my life? 
a vague spirituality doesn't assess you with any sort of judgment or discernment, so you can kind of live in sin if you want to. The doctrine was important, and he shows his character through all the things that he went through so that they could come to know these things, or so that Timothy could. Verse 12, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. It's not a, you know, I'm sure if you talk to the Walendas, they're like, well, this thing where you got to learn how to walk on this tightrope, it's not easy. <laughs> I mean, we're going to get up before the sun comes up, have a little bit of breakfast, and we're going to be out there working on that rope for about four hours. And when we get done, we're going to do a bunch of calisthenics, and you're going to do some backflips and a bunch of other things to work on your balance and your muscles and building up your hand-eye coordination. Then we're going to get back on the rope for a while, and we're going to gradually move the rope higher and higher and higher. These are the things you got to do. It's not easy. It's going to feel like a persecution going through all this stuff. And the circumstances are persecuting as well, are they not? I mean, if you fall off a rope, it's going to be bad. So that's the situation we're in in life, and we should apply ourselves. We're going to have persecution. It's going to be difficult, right? But know this, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to get worse. That's kind of like saying, yeah, okay, I was working with the Walendas, and I walked across that rope that they had stretched out. It was only three feet across the ground. But you know what? I finally built up my skills to where I could get across. You know, I'm working my way across. I got all the way across. It was 20 feet. That's pretty good. But I was only three feet off the ground. The worst thing that could happen, I'm just going to have to jump off the rope and I start over again. This says evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. Well, if you're a Walenda, that's like saying, that's fine, but this rope is going to get higher and higher and higher. It's not good enough that you felt okay to get across it when it's three feet off the ground. What about when it's 30 feet off the ground? What about when it's 60 feet off the ground and there's no net? It's going to get worse and worse. It's going to be more and more difficult. And so you should apply yourself all the more to being skilled in this exercise. Perilous times, and it's a perilous rope. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Paul spent a little time on the rope. See what I'm saying? He had a lot of experience with persecutions and difficulty and walking this high wire act of Christianity. He's saying, I've been on the rope. I'm teaching you the way across. I'm teaching you how to do this. It takes skill. It takes knowledge. You have to keep calm. You have to keep going. It may be rough. But look, it's not like I'm not somebody who's been on a rope before, right? He's telling them to press into what they've learned. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He's pointing out that the teaching of the Word of God has been tremendously beneficial to Timothy and will continue to be. And by the way, he started picking these things up at a very young age. The Walendas started working on their kids. They started putting their kids on the rope pretty young. There's a point at which you are too old to learn how to do this. If I went to the Walendas now and said, okay, I'm 55 years old, ready to start working on the rope, they're going to be like, dude... That ain't going to happen. It's going to be really hard for you. Maybe it could be done. I don't know. But I know it would be a whole lot easier if you started them out when they're really tiny. When they're so young that you think, that kid couldn't possibly be able to do that, could he? You'd be amazed what kids can do. Kids are actually more skillful at stuff like that than people who are older. they got less weight to manage. they got pretty good coordination and balance when you're that age. And the truth is, we need to regard the teaching of children in very much the same way. 
Having Grant Miller here in this assembly is really important. It's important for him to hear what's preached. And he is no different than any of us. In fact, if he is different, he may be more able to hear and receive than some of us. Some of us got so crusty over the course of our lives, we just become hard of hearing about stuff. We don't want to hear it. You've heard it a bunch of times and you get bored. You're thinking about other things. Whereas a young child may have the agility to be able to pick this up and run with it. Timothy benefited from the fact that he was taught as a very young child these truths. And there's a way in which the Word of God can take root in a young person that may be much harder in a person that's older. And that certainly happened for Timothy. And then he closes with this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Sometimes I think the Christian walk comes down to, do you really believe that the Word of God is profitable? Many of us let our Bibles sit and collect dust. We forsake the assembly in various ways. We don't avail ourselves of the conversations with other Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who might set our minds on spiritual things rather than on razorback things, distractions of the carnal world. Do we really believe that the Word of God is profitable? Well, it claims to be. And doctrine is again repeated here. So if you're in any situation in Christianity and they're saying doctrine is not important, you're just totally out of the way. That's just all there is to it. They're hiding something from you. There's something they don't want you to know. If you're saying doctrine's not important, you're saying Paul's not important, which is saying Paul is wrong, which is saying the Bible is wrong, and you're just not even sitting on Christianity's foundation anymore. You're just making it up as you go. It's another form of vague New Age spiritualism because we don't really have scripture anymore. We're just going to get around, feel good around each other and try to have spiritual experiences with one another, ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Because if you're not understanding doctrine and understanding these things, you're not understanding the truth. Reproof and correction. Reproof is like, you know, I'm validating to myself that this is true. I see it. This was taught. I'm looking out in the world around me and I see that the Bible says if you live this way, there's going to be these consequences. I see people around me who are doing these things or I've done things myself and they brought consequences into my life. It's proving to me that God's word is true. It might be very painful. It might be very unpleasant, but it is proving it to me. Whether I see it in my own life or see it in the lives of others. Correction. We all need correction. If God's people didn't need correction, this wouldn't need to be in here. So we're constantly adrift, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, is what we sing, right? We need correction in our lives and instruction in righteousness. The Word of God is where you find those things. Those are the things you need in order to walk this perilous tightrope of the Christian life, that the man of God may be perfect. Now, I made mention before that the word perfect carries some baggage with it. We often think of it as zero mistakes, Zero flaws, right? It is perfect in that sense. And that is a, one of the meanings of the term perfect. But as it's employed in the Bible, and certainly in this instance, the term perfect means complete. It sort of carries the idea of maturity, right? I've been equipped to go through this life. If you go back to the Walendas, it's like those people were not absolutely perfect. Some of them fell off the rope. They clearly weren't perfect. But they had a life where they said, I've got to try to become as close to perfect as I can get because it's a high-stakes game and I don't want to fall off this rope. 
And I've put in a lot of time and practice so that when it's showtime and I got to walk across that rope, I have been properly equipped to give myself the very best shot of getting across this rope, right? I want to be as good as I can possibly be. And that's really what's in view here. It's telling you this. The Word of God gives you what you need to be able to do this. It equips you in perilous times. And while absolute perfection eludes us, if you pursue that goal through the precepts of God found in the Bible, you're going to be as well equipped as is possible and as is necessary to walk across that tightrope of life. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.